KZSU okay, Stanford. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. Here we talk about economics, housing in the Bay Area, and much more. We are talking about housing today. We're talking about laws in Sacramento today. We're talking about SB 827. And I will just get into it. So yeah, today uh, I have on the show again, Max Kapczynski. Got the pronunciation right, did I? You sure did. Nice. And we are having a overall look about what is coming down the pipes as far as, you could say, solutions or just anything kind of moving uh, the housing football forward. And there's a couple things happening in Sacramento, a couple things in the initiative. Uh, and I guess to start off, uh, the thing getting the most talk uh, is uh, SBS E27. Yeah, so, it's um, as, as we all... Um, as we may or may not know, um, SB 827 is uh, written by State Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco. Um, the point of the the point of the legislation would be to prevent cities from imposing parking minimums, um, height limits, and FAR restrictions on projects up to a certain up to a certain high limit near transit near transit stops or transit lines of a sufficient uh, throughput. Yeah, and to take, the, I guess, the, the real high-level view, people who don't know much about why things are crazy in California would say, California doesn't allow people to build, they don't have enough housing. And they're to a first approximation, they're certainly not wrong. We don't have enough housing for how many people want housing in California. Our homelessness is huge, and people living and commuting from outside... It just it's a huge commuting class. There's just a, there's a scarcity, and this is unambiguously true. There is not enough housing for who wants it. Yeah, and if you look at places around the world that do not have an affordability crisis or a supply crisis, the way they build their cities, the way their cities look, the way they're built, it is there's either not enough money or it is against the law to build a city like that here. Yes, I mean it's it is very there's very much a well. This is the way we do things in California. And, well, let's be realistic about the way we do things here. And you'd see it's not working, and it is not like what everyone else does. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of... Uh, people made analogies to the past of city planners. They're not much different than people who were the old... Before the scientific method came to medicine. This is the way we do things. We put a leech on 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 your neck, and this is... This is just how it's done. We have all these very specific rules about the leech must be this big and it must be placed here, but there's really nothing about is it working. Uh, but I guess the very top level view, a lot of people are saying, hey, the Scott Weiner guy, he is doing a lot of pro-housing stuff, which California needs, and this SBA 27, this is going to basically add a lot of housing. So for people who are kind of just taking a very broad view, they're saying, Man, this is exactly what California needs, and I'd say, to a first pass, that seems absolutely true. Uh, but then I guess when you get deeper and deeper into the drama, everything, there's always uh, skeptics, naysayers, and I guess the question is, what are? Is it really that simple? Uh, I'd say short term. I'd say short term. It kind of is to a first capacity. Uh, it really could be because if you look, you just need to look at there is beginning to be a more vocal opposition to 827 and these other bills. Um, but what it revolves around is 
usually for most of the people who are who are moneyed, who are ho- home or landowners. It revolves around stuff like neighborhood character, noise, uh, shadows, heights of buildings. Like so, this is this is the classic argument coming back for why we're in this predicament in the first place. I don't see really any kind of actual common good appeal against this legislation. So the, yeah, I mean, why do we not have enough housing? Largely because it's illegal to build housing. We actually have laws in the books. There are zoning laws and also restrictive approval processes, but it is illegal to build as much housing as we need, which is a, a relatively new problem for cities to have. This didn't happen in the past. And the bill is saying, how can we change this? We can add housing where it's the right place to add housing. Where is the right place? Transit corridors. Where people are close to, uh, first of all, like permanent major transit things like Caltrain, BART, those places absolutely should have a lot of housing. Yeah, uh, and high throughput bus lines, like then, like all throughout San Francisco and the peninsula. Exactly, which I believe a high throughput is defined by you get a, a bus every 15 minutes or more? 15 or 20 during commuting hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During commuting hours. That's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point, yes. So, and, and these are treated, basically, you will create a new zone half a mile around a major transit center. Uh, those must be basically this this new overriding high-density zoning would happen there. Actually, I believe it's defined as a bonus. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Yes. And it's, it's defined as, yeah, removing the ability of cities to restrict which is, I think, a good way of putting it. Absolutely, because bill this bill won't make this bill won't make housing. This bill doesn't put money towards building buildings. This money this bill doesn't hire developers and hire contractors. Yeah. This bill removes the restrictions that are preventing private parties from, or even even cities if they wanted to, from building these buildings. And I suppose that's the first and most important thing to consider is if you say, should the level of zoning be higher or lower, you get you get kind of this kind of technocratic, uh, just kind of knob turning and say, okay, how, how is this going to work out? If you look at it a different way, saying, is it right to have density restrictions at all in these areas? What is the purpose? There really is not a very good reason, you know, just everything else equal, why you should have density restrictions near a subway stop or a train station. Yeah, you like can, in North Berkeley or like in Atherton or like in, but yeah, name any city yeah. and name any little suburb named Lafayette. Yeah, I saw, I saw a nice photo. There was a photo of a, of a train stop and next to it was... A parking lot structure, which was like eight, nine stories tall, and they had the housing next to it, which is like three stories tall at yeah. best. And yeah, uh, that's that that explains it all right there. Yeah. So, and people say like, well, this is the natural thing of being able to define zoning, however it is. It's kind of unnatural. It's relatively new, and it's yeah. ways of saying, hey, we just want to make laws to make it illegal to build housing for reasons. Reasons are largely sociological about keeping the the poor people out of your city. I mean, this is really unambiguously why zoning became wildly popular. Because before this, people say, oh, well, zoning's not all bad. You don't want a factory next door. But before zoning, you have a nuisance loss. If people build a, house, if people build a factory next door, you could still get rid of it. Uh, but just to get, get back to... And yeah, just, yeah. and peep, there's this there's this, I forget what kind of logical fallacy it's called, but it's there of if you want to make zoning sensible that 
that is a wholesale return to 1800s methods of building cities that one can't go without the other. Like, oh, you would like to return to Pittsburgh, and yeah. then you know, the air will turn black. It's like, I yeah, to a coal mine company town. Like, we can still keep we can still keep the air clean and still have dense. Uh, dense cities. You can look around the world. There are plenty of cities denser in the Bay Area that have clean air. It's not. It's not impossible. It's true. Yeah, and I think we. I think we could do it. I think we absolutely could. Not only that, I think I really think we should. But if people are doubting our ability to make a city that works economically for everybody, has enough housing for everybody, and where you don't need a car, it's really not. It's not. It can't be that hard. So, and then also is misconception number two. Zoning is basically. Uh, a God-given right of cities. That's kind yeah, of what people control. say. Local control. Local uh, control. And people say, like, cities, they, of course, you can't take this away. This is something that they deserve. This is how cities, this is how they function. Uh, you know, zoning is a state power. It rests in the state of California, and every state basically makes, has, has uh, in the original zoning laws, as the SHZA back in the 19-teens, it is a state delegating down to its cities saying, mm-hmm. we trust you to do zoning because it will basically allow you to keep your city clean. Just do it. It's fine. Just as long as it works for the whole state, it's great. And we see the point, uh, because of demand exceeding supply, we it has ceased to work well for the state. So the state, I think, just a matter of right and wrong, has every reason to say, "Hey, this is our power. You're kind of misusing it. If you can't play well with your toys, we're going to take it away from you." And that's exactly what the state is offering to do in a very limited aspect, which is transit corridors. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely, I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. The it's these cities around here, um, the Bay Area, I feel like, is unique in that way, but possibly similar to Los Angeles, where it's one urban agglomeration, one mass, yeah. but it's not administrated like most metropolises around the world are, where it has a much stronger link to the state and federal governments. It's so tightly, it's so tightly wound up at the local level, and there's no really, there's really no plans to change that. Aside from these these timid advances by Sacramento. I mean, of these places, why doesn't Atherton, why does it exist? It's like a weird independent city, which has, I, I couldn't even imagine what the average income is. But they have, in the place where you have the most demand for building housing in the world, they have minimum lot sizes of God knows how many, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that's, well, of course, that's by design. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, you say, okay, you would never design it this way. You would never say, okay, we're, we need to have the Bay Area work for everybody. Let's have a train station that goes down partway through the peninsula and down, and we have a, we have, you know, the bark goes to here and the, you could connect to the Caltrain here and you have all these cities that fight over every, there is, there is very little regional cooperation, almost just based on the fact that their incentives are badly aligned. In yeah, tri- there's there's no incentives at all. Yeah, it, it's set down by law to to establish a, to establish what the state thinks the city should do, what the cities actually have to do, what they have to do with each other, and the default is nothing. They have to do nothing the state tells them to. They have to cooperate in no way with each other. They are just accountable to their voters and their landholders. Yeah, I mean, and you talk about like how do you get around these these problems in the past. Sometimes you have things where you really do have incentives aligned. Uh, Los Angeles is a famous case where their incentives aligned to merge into 
the, the greater city of Los Angeles, not to say there aren't different cities. Beverly Hills is this independent city. Uh, but Los Angeles is a very large city compared to what we have around here, largely because they have the incentives line, we need water, and that's why they move mm. together. Uh, before cars, New York City merged into one giant city instead of all these warring boroughs because they actually needed cooperation and transit or else their people would be unable to really function. But with cars and linking roads, there is a very... uh, People can get away with not really cooperating well here, and we see that happen. Uh, On a federal level, uh, I I don't really know all the details, but there is, as opposed to the general, I guess, cascading layers, which are you have the state, you have the county, you have the city, Hmm. and you kind of, you know, all of these things kind of cooperate. The feds don't have anything to do with zoning. The county does, unless superseded by the city, but there is still a lot of cooperation between the city and the county. Uh, there's also regional districts, and these are largely about administering uh, transit or basically transportation plans that are tied to federal funds. And if the or at fe- least used to be at before, least, you know, back when the federal government funded things. Exactly. I mean, this is a good way to say what has worked. If the Fed say, hey, here's a big pile of cash, but we're not going to put into your city so you'll fight over it, and it goes into pockets of, of people who have you know private interests, we want to see this actually be useful. So we're actually going to kind of create this own layer of government for making a regional transportation improvement. Is that what ABAG was created to do? That's a good question. I don't know the history of ABAG, but ABAG is the kind of weird regional transportation uh, or regional government we have here, the Association of Bay Area Governments, which right now is most relevant as affects housing. I don't know exactly how it affects things like BART extensions and all that. But the I first, yeah, the first time in history I started, I because um, I read up a bit on the history of BART and ABAG plays um, plays a major role in um, yeah in developing the plans for BART and working with all the cities and especially allocating the funding. Um, I imagine if that if they didn't if they did exist before that this was their first major powerful um, assignment. And for a while they did have significant power when the scope of BART was much larger, when the amount of funding was much larger in the sixties, yeah. and when there was unanimous regional cooperation. But then through the 70s and 80s, it, along with uh, as uh, following the pattern of public transit in the United States and the balance of power for cities, counties, and state in California, their power waned as well. And you get to the point, I guess, where the cities of California kind of were had, had a choice to make between local control and better cooperation, especially in transit, within the region. And as we see, based upon the low quality of transit around the Bay Area, they have largely chosen to fight transit and to have, we will use the highways we have, we will use these, you know, basically independent methods of of single occupancy cars instead. And we are now at capacity. You look at the at the congestion we have here. Uh, oh yeah, at and beyond. Absolutely, and and at a certain point, you'd say, okay, this is the point where rationally everyone should get together and say, okay, let's <laughs> let's uh, let, let's work better on transit. But it doesn't seem like that's happening at any kind of real speed around here. It's, it's it is happening extremely slowly. Yes. How long did it take for the Warm Springs BART station to be built? I mean, it's slowly enough that it really leads you to say 
people don't want it that much. Oh, yeah. And people are fighting it. People yeah. are fighting the BART extension. People are fighting the Chinatown uh, Muni extension. Yeah. People are fighting it, um, both from this landowner uh, NIMBY perspective, but also from this anti-gentrification perspective, which you could write you could write a volume. You could write papers on how those very, very strangely align in their rhetoric, in their goals— uh, but not at all in the character and, and demographic of the person espousing those goals. Well, let's talk about the positive vision of a Palo Alto homeowner, for instance. Their positive vision of how do things get better? Traffic is bad. Everyone agrees. Traffic is terrible. How does it get better? It it clears up. <laughs> we the, the, the solution they have... They don't have, want to build more roads. If you built more roads, then you'd Palo Alto would have highways running through it. Yeah, I think they, they don't want more highways. Also, I think that they perhaps are realistic of saying, when you build more highways, those get filled up pretty quickly in practice. There's yeah. really never been a case of a city that builds their way out of congestion through more highways. It's funny, look at a place like Atlanta. Atlanta, it's you drive through I-75 at, at night or something. It's just this... It feels like you're in a uh, post-apocalyptic. It's just so many lanes, and in Atlanta, they get traffic jams still. Um, oh yeah, during at peak, yeah. I mean, there's there's a there are rules of thumb in transportation planning that say that the overall rate of congestion for highways will always be basically pegged to the level of transit alternatives you have at different points. I believe it. And I think there's a certain truth to that. You always have people who say like, "Okay, I'm going to start I'm going to stop carpooling. I'm going to start really just taking it easy up to the point that I have to look at different alternatives, yeah. such as taking the bus or the Caltrain and all sorts of things." And there are almost besides traffic, there are almost no negative incentives to owning a car, to being the only person in it, to driving, to spending tons of time um in other places around the world, car ownership is very expensive. Drive, getting a driver's license is very expensive. Parking is very expensive. The taxes are very, very high. And here, it's the opposite. Everything is very cheap, and some things are even subsidized. We subsidize gas here in this country more than any country that's not in the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, you talk about, you know, is America, how capitalist or socialist is America? We are incredibly socialist as far as as far as far cars go. We build basically, you know, roads, that you use for free wherever you want, we subsidize, and and you are expected to pay very little out of pocket. You get your own car, then the world's open to you, and that's been the choice that we've made. Yeah, and and that's the thing too. When we look at transit, it's like okay, well that costs, <laughs> but we don't make the same kind of calculations when it comes to well our highways roads. cost an incredible amount of money, but that money is never going away. Yeah, uh, money from all the money is being pulled from almost everywhere else, but it's never going to be pulled from highways. It'll maybe be reduced to the minimum it takes to keep the, the to keep the infrastructure going. But this is there's an interesting I was reading about um, when Amtrak was introduced. Um, Amtrak was um, a public uh, consolidation of all the private rail companies, which were all starting to go bankrupt in the '70s, in the early '70s, because of cars. Yeah, because of the one of the core points that was made. I thought this was very thought this was very smart. These public are the, these uh, these these private rail companies were expected to turn a profit and remain competitive, um, even when they had to pay all of their own expenses, operate their own infrastructure, and they were competing with highways, which were 
publicly subsidized with fuel, which was privately purchased and heavily publicly subsidized, and they could not compete. Amtrak still barely can either, because how can you compete with highways? And Amtrak, you talk about like the overhead they do, they don't even own a lot of their own rail tracks. They yeah. have to basically, Union Pacific, they have to pay for use of that. Yeah, they lease the right of way. Which is, one, it explains low quality of, 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 of throughput, and it explains basically why it can't be cheaper. And it's, it's kind of crazy. This is America's trains running on America's land, and then the Union Pacific Corporation gets this gets a gets a cut of it somehow. It's very yeah. very odd. And freight freight rail in this country also is basically is basically a duopoly. Mm. There's Union Pacific and BNSF in the in the West Coast and the East yeah. Coast. Maybe it's different, but I mean that's what's to be that something like rail service kind of is a natural monopoly if you're if you're building lots and lots of rails. But we talked about the I guess the positive vision that Apollo people would have yes. in the future. The positive vision is kind of, okay, make traffic go away. Just make it make it like the 70s again. We want it to be nice and open. A realistic, a realistic uh, vision for the future is, okay, traffic is really, really bad. We need to get more throughput in the transit lines. One, we have to improve our transit lines. Two, we need to get a lot more people without cars near the transit lines. And that's the only way you can have people living around here and not just basically a complete breakdown of transportation. Yeah. And if you talk about what is consistent with the positive view of the future, SB 827 is, I think, pretty pragmatic of saying, okay, let's be honest here. Where do we need housing the most? Where we can be dense and not uh, basically tax our existing infrastructure, such as roads, even more. Yeah. When you're in your transit... You have an ability to, at least if you if you improve and maintain it, to have a lot of throughput, and that's how most major great cities do it is by leveraging transit. And, the yeah. ba- and th- there's there's so many other there's there's so many there's there's another a couple of angles too at the local level. Palo Altans aren't they? They start in Palo Alto, and their job might be there as well, or they might be retired. Yeah, they may work at Stanford or work in the Stanford Office Park or something like that. A lot of the traffic they're contending with is people who are coming from all the way across the bay because there's nowhere to live in Palo Alto. Yeah, if they could live here and be within biking distance, that car would vanish off the road entirely. You wouldn't even have to serve that person with all of this excellent transit to get them tens of miles if they didn't have to go tens of miles. If you, yeah, if you, which is a major <laughs> consequence of how we've been planning Palo Alto's much vaunted jobs housing imbalance. Yeah, if you make it just work, if you make it possible to commute sensibly without the whole, okay, let's add a couple hours of being parked in traffic, and then you get here, to, you have to have supply parking here, which is more valuable land being put for cars. And that's a big part of this, too. You talk about what this will restrict cities from doing. It is having basically density limits, such as uh, you know, in single-family things, you have uh, minimum lot size, which is one of the yeah. craziest things you ever see anywhere. Minimum lot size. Yeah, set back from the edges. You cannot use all of your land. You can yeah. only use some of it. And FAR restrictions. You cannot use too much of your land. You have to leave some of it empty. I mean, yeah, well, all it is is saying is basically, yeah, if you got too much stuff in your building, it's bad and we're going we're gonna to limit it. And that's just, it's very weird. So, yeah, we sh- yeah. You should basically say, okay, setbacks. You say, okay, you don't want people to kind of lean out into the sidewalk. You don't want people to feel like your your building is actually like make, encroaching is encro- the uh <laughs> Yeah, but like it's you say like you just you want it to basically be as good a building as you can without really limiting 
the overall functionality of, of the space and everything else. And, I mean, if you talk about it, it usually isn't the big books of modern city planning that have the best options for this. It tends to be really maybe when people are able to be creative and really just kind of find good solutions. I mean, I think uh, you look at places like Japan has national laws about setbacks. Oh, and yeah. they're very minimal, and I think that tends to allow flexibility in how they implement it. And Japan has transit that's vastly better than what we have here. They <laughs> A little bit. Yes. They, Japan still has suburban sprawl. Japan still has um, single-family homes. Japan still has some places that are low-density but they also have tons and tons of places that are incredibly high density, and they have transit to serve it all. So they're not suffering from the same problems we are. Yeah, I, mean, I think people say, like, YIMBY means that there should be, every place should be look like Hong Kong. Every place should be, you know, all skyscrapers. <laughs> it's saying, no, that's not the case, but there probably be, should be a few places that are like that. Yeah, we don't need that. Hong Kong is the size, Hong Kong could, could fit within the Bay Area if you, if you dropped its land in here. And it, it's very small. <laughs> And that's what they've had to do. We still have plenty of land in America for suburbs, yeah. but we shouldn't force the suburbs upon a place that needs to grow beyond it. And that's exactly what we're doing. We are prescribing the suburbs on places that it that is just the wrong thing to do it for. If a place is the suburbs, does it stay the suburbs forever, even when real estate starts costing two, three million dollars? If it costs two, three million dollars, I think you say, "Hey, this isn't working. This isn't what the suburbs are." And it really should be when you see when you see a failure of affordability that huge, you should throw everything out the window. I mean, in my mind, you should say, "Okay, what we've been doing for forty years is a failure. Let's really try some new things." And and California really hasn't done that largely because incentives is because the people who control the uh, way you design cities are largely the people who benefit from unaffordability. And people who really, really want the suburbs to stay. Yes. They really, really want to keep driving their car out of their two-car garage. They really, really want to keep their front and backyards. It's a, it's a very unholy uh, alliance of nostalgists and people who have a lot of uh, of profit in their mind. It's and people have turned suburbs into an absolutism, neighborhood character yeah. as an ironclad principle for keeping a city the same. That is that is that's unprecedented in city planning around the world. And neighborhood character never in this way, yeah. never seems to you know really capture affordability as being part of neighborhood character. I mean, in my mind, my neighborhood character, when I think of growing up, you had houses that cost $100,000. That's my neighborhood character. And if it's costing $3 million, you say, okay, let's, I could care a little bit less about minimum lot sizes. Let's get affordability down because I want a place where people can live. Well, that's what makes them – that kind of – I think that the, the high cost is it hits – it, it makes homeowners go um, – it makes them stonewall on two fronts. One, they want their home to keep going up in price. They would love that. But two, they know that if they were to cash out, they wouldn't keep being able to live in Palo Alto. And they like Palo Alto. The ultimate bad incentive is when you have people who are given basically stability in staying in their house, which is all things equal, a good thing. It's good to be able to be housing secure. But when you are really, really housing secure through Prop 13, lo and behold, then suddenly people don't have the incentive 
to have affordability around them. Oh, absolutely not. When you are grandfathered in, suddenly you stop caring about, hey, how easy it is to get inside uh, to get your foot on the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. The, it, the way it used to be would be if, for example, half of Manhattan was once rural and then the farmers sold their land at, le- at much more than they bought it and then ha- big houses for the rich were put up and then they sold that land for much more than they bought it and row houses for <clears throat> the middle class were put up and then they sold the land for a lot. Then that can only keep going when you don't say what this looks like in time is what it will look like forever. Yeah. When density cannot go up, when it's illegal to build, I mean, what can the prices do but keep going up? There, there's a good article uh, online by the title of "The Cartel Next Door." It was saying like the zoning and other, other, uh, other basically features of of low density housing. It is very similar to a bunch of companies that want to restrict competition. It's like, okay, let's just make sure none of us are able to basically build up. And do what the market is telling us to do. Not to be a market absolutist, but when you have three million dollars of land and you decide to build a single-family house, that's a market failure. I mean, if you listen to the market saying, "Hey, people want to use this land denser than this," but a cartel is basically let's avoid listening to that and basically keep this kind of artificially low coordinated. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like OPEC resi- um, restricting supply. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk one more thing this restricts is parking requirements, which is yeah. the the de facto way that you make sure that there is parking is when you build new housing, it has to supply its own parking. On site. On site. which Usually will, on the first floor and below at two, great expense. Two effects, yes. One is it's expensive, and if you talk about what makes housing more and more expensive, if you say, hey, you can't just build this, but you have to actually waste part of your land to build parking lots, parking spaces on your apartment, it's going to make it harder to build the best apartment you can, and it's going to make it more expensive to to use. Two is it is going to make sure that the car-centric culture is never going away. Yeah, that it stays. If you are building Literally right next to to a BART station, you're going to have to build car parking for every unit there. Mm-hmm. Even that's the ideal person to be using their their yeah. uh, the, the transit. They're living next to it, and yeah. and those are mandated from a number of sources. Those are required. Those can be required locally, and they can be required by the bank that's financing a project, because housing projects that have cars in them attract wealthier tenants, they command higher prices, and they can pay back the bank loan faster. So often the bank will mandate certain parking ratios, parking amounts, and the town will as well because they don't want to see uh, more parking congestion. Yeah, And they want to see parking stay free, free too for people who want to drive downtown. But they want the cost of the additional residence parking to be borne by the people who built the buildings. People, they want to have free parking and with no downsides. Yeah. And here's the, the the dirty secret. If you want something for free, you're not going to get it for free. There are going to be consequences. And part of the consequences you get are you are going to have basically you know, a, a limit in the amount of housing you need. 
and things become more affordable, unaffordable, and you're going to get congestion. Uh, yeah. you, you really can never get anything for free by mandating that you supply it. it Keeping it free is very expensive. It's very. It's a. It's a. It's a basically an invisible tax that every renter and effectively in the long term every homeowner is going to be bearing, except for the small class of people who really bought decades ago, and they are the beneficiaries in the Great Pyramid scheme, which everything flows upwards to them. Um, there's one more interesting detail of this SB 827 by Scott Weiner. It uh, talks about in the past there are actually constitutional requirements saying that the state must reimburse local agencies for certain costs uh, and school districts for certain costs. If you make it more dense, say, okay, we have to basically pay for the cost of, of the schools directly. Oh, like if a town is growing and a school has to double in size, there is a... There, that used to be the case that the state would pay for the increase in size for the school. That which is a big incentive, saying please don't increase in size. And this just says this changes it. We're not going to do it. You and it's really up to the city to find out better ways to fund the schools they need. There is. It's unfortunate because that's also traffic, parking, and schools are. I'd say third in line behind those two things in the thing that homeowners are terrified about. Yeah. About about inadequate capacity of schools, inadequate funding of schools. If all these people move in, how will the schools hold all of them? How will we have enough teachers? And I mean, I, I, you you could talk, you know, you you give a whole thing talking about Serrano v. Priest. And actually I feel like just to kind of defer this this is before Prop 13 basically severed the original tie. I mean, basically severed the tie of funding through your local property taxes. There were Supreme Court cases in California saying that, okay, school funding can't be local. They need to be through the state. Hmm. And when people stop you know, basically seeing the local incentives align of your local property taxes paying for your local schools, it suddenly sounded very attractive for everybody to say, well, let's defund all the schools. And lo and behold, yeah. that's what happened in California. It's California went from the, uh, I believe, the best funded uh, schools. In and the best country. performing. And best, now we are funded, I think, third or fourth worst in, in the country. Aren't, aren't the schools' performance dead worst, too? If I, I will say this. I could believe it, although I have trouble believing Alabama, Mississippi can't <laughs> possibly be last in every possible. Well, they don't way. have Prop Thirteen. Yeah, I mean that's a they they at least have a way to kind of get out of it. So that's the thing too. I I it's a curious thing. School funding, they're kind of saying, okay, we're not basically shooting ourselves in the foot by saying Sacramento's going to clean up your mess, but it's it's kind of up in the air. How are you going to clean up your mess? Yeah. And all of these, well, all of these these individual components that are all individual problems that you can see separately, there's there's always this chicken and egg kind of thing. Like, oh, well, it's hard to run schools be- when the population's increasing. Oh, and teachers need to be paid a lot of money, and teachers can't live here, so how can we expand the schools? We don't have teachers. Um, it seems it seems recursive, but I think if we if something like SBA two seven passes and we just start building much much more than we ever have before, that that will be the reset that will be on the path to the reset that we need. I mean, it solves if you can get affordability for teachers' houses down. That's a one major thing for getting school costs down. I mean, yeah. it's, yes. And for increasing school quality. Because if a teacher will would continue to work for an elementary school and continue to make an excellent continue to make an excellent wage and not leave for private employment or something like that or a different career, which is what a lot of teachers do. So let's talk about responses to SB 827. I mean, I think the very f- first 
instinct by I think most people is hey, this sounds like a common sense idea for California needs. There has been a lot of critiques. Actually, I'd say to go of public statements by uh, by elected uh, mayors, uh, there's a, kind of a correspondence of mayors that have largely a white constituency have been against it, and mayors that have a uh, uh, basically a majority minority uh, constituency have been supporting of this of this upsetting proposal by by Weiner. Uh, the uh, it's uh, Sam Licardo of San Jose has has uh, has has given the thumbs up. Twenty nine percent white people in in San Jose. So, uh, whereas West Side LA uh, uh, Mayor Coretz, I believe seventy four percent white, and he is opposing SB eight twenty seven. Berkeley Mayor uh, Jesse Arguian, uh, huge NIMBY. Everyone. Ooh, yeah. What's how's he stand on it? Uh, he made a tweet a few days ago saying, uh, "If you upzone all of all of this areas, uh, it is going to basically uh, evict everyone who's a renter." And- uh, I love it how he gets away with being a NIMBY, but he he trots out all these gen- these anti gentrification lines and social justice lines. It kills me. And that's the thing: there is a kind of narrative uh, being uh, uh, rising of SB eight twenty seven is going to worsen gentrification. Uh, so let's break that down. <laughs> what what one what is gentrification? Gentrification is when people are housing insecure due to the fact that costs of housing are rising and their stability is declining for whatever reason in their neighborhood. Is that gentrification or is that displacement? Because I think people conflate the that's two a, all the time. That's a very good. I was actually I was saying gentrification, but really I was saying gentrification driven displacement. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas I will say this, yeah. If everybody gets together and the kind of flavor of an area changes, you can say that's kind of sad, but I would say giving affordable housing for everybody, I would say housing insecurity is the top thing that yeah. I would say that is what I want to fight. I want to fight housing insecurity and I want to fight displacement. If neighbor Renters' controls should include freedom from fear of eviction, freedom from incredible price increases, freedom from um, crooked landlords who don't maintain the buildings. I don't think renter and homeowner protections should include freedom from the neighborhood's character and demographic ever-changing. And I, I think you can make a case. I mean, it's a sad thing. If your neighborhood is kind of dangerous and people don't want to be there, that can possibly be the only way that you can keep the demand down to basically keep your affordability up. So if people say, please keep our neighborhood malfunctioning so I can afford to be here, please don't basically make it safe or else the demand will go way up. There is a truth in that, but it's a really sad truth, which is there is a class of people who can only afford to live in places where it is too dangerous or just lack of demand for anybody to live. Yeah, where it's underserved by every kind of city resource. Yes, and and it's a and there is not surprisingly that's where you tend to see development really concentrate in the city when you have a powerless underclass who is both economically and politically underserved, you tend to say, oh, by the way, we are building all the housing in your area and nowhere anywhere else. Because the people in those and in, in the everywhere else, like let's talk about San Francisco. Yes. The mission is a, it's like the focal points, the center of all of this gentrification rhetoric in San Francisco. And 
and these this this situation is completely playing out here. The housing doesn't get built in Pacific Heights. Yes. The housing doesn't get built in the sunset. Absolutely not. Yes. Projects are being built up in the mission and and people are also being displaced at the same time. But I don't they, think that those two things aren't they are holding up all the weight of saying weed housing Oh, look who look who we drew the lot of again. Oh, the mission. Oh, we'll build here. Oh, we need to build more housing. Oh, the mission again. We have to build. And the sunset is able to say, okay, none for us. We're fine. Yeah, Neighborhood bye. character. Yeah. Uh, and what's nice about this is if you look at the map overlays of what will be affected by SBA 27, it's like all of San Francisco. It's, it's all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like maybe like a few pockets up in the very hills. Yeah, like the Presidio in, and Twin Peaks. Yeah. Twi- I was thinking Twin Peaks. I don't know what the is. It's still federal land. The Presidio. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, the Twin Disney's Pe- there. So <laughs> exactly. Uh, there is. Yeah. So you have a few, but really, it's the whole city. Yeah. And if you talk about what is the increased capacity, if it's if it's a sunset, you are going to see basically a huge, huge upzoning. In the sunset, yeah. If you talk about the mission, it barely changes because they the mission lo- is already relatively dense. Exactly, and and I I think I will say there are a lot of people who I think are not disingenuous, but are actually I think basically misinformed to say any change is going to be bad for us. And any change is gentrification. Any change is gentrification, and it's going to be bad for us because we are the politically underserved, and it's going to boomerang back and hit us, and it's going to be bad news. I'll say this, that's not a bad instinct, but it tends to say, what is their answer for everything? It's a lack of change. It's no. Yeah, it's no. Exactly. <laughs> and a lack of change is never going to fix their problem. They're saying, we want basically uh, saner ways to, to deal with rent control than we have now to offer stability. We want public housing. I'd say, right on. I think public housing is absolutely what San Francisco needs. We have homeless. We have uh, people who are housing insecure. We absolutely should be building a f- you know, housing to make sure that nobody has to doesn't have a place to be. Oh yeah, but we don't. <laughs> we don't. The city doesn't have the money, and where most people who are near homeless right now, or people who you'll see on the street and you'll call them homeless, they may have somewhere to live. They may live in a single room occupancy, like quasi hotel. They're called SROs. That used to be a lot more of them. Yeah, forty dollars a night. Not cheap. Yeah. They made them illegal. That is the that was the direct target of zoning, mm. the zoning rules. Yeah, and also public health and fire code rules, which may be well or poorly intentioned, but did have the absolute effect of making it illegal to build more of these SROs. Which, if you, how do you house people cheaply? You just keep making the unit smaller, and you keep building higher and higher. And you know, yeah, people say like, "Oh, this is inhumane to have a shared bathroom on a floor." I'd say if the alternative is you living in your car, you living on the street, living in tents, it's pretty nice to be able to say, "I have a roof yeah. over my head and a, and a safe, comfortable place to be." Having a shared shower, people people have there's worse alternatives, and they are living through it right now. Yeah. So I will say this: I am very sympathetic to saying, okay, you know, people will say this isn't enough. We need public housing. And they're right. We need public housing, but it's not really a good reason to say we should preserve downzoning until yeah. we get public housing because yeah. because that's what that's what has been happening basically. And that's that's what happens in all the rich neighborhoods around San Francisco and all these suburbs. And SBA 27 would provide exactly the kind of accountability and 
removing the ability of these rich neighborhoods to exempt themselves from their duty and exempt themselves from building enough and then shoving it all off on uh, less lucky neighborhoods like the Mission. If it makes, yeah, if it makes places like Palo Alto upset, you know it's doing things that are really in the better interest of people in the mission. Yeah. And the people who are homeless and invisible on the peninsula. Yeah. There is a large homeless population on the peninsula living both in RVs and living, you know, in in tent encampments. And people are very willing to ignore them because people have more pressing concerns and they just want not to think about these people. Yeah. And, and occasionally the police sweep them out, like in Berkeley under under fearless leader Aragin. Yeah. The police sweep out the homeless encampments every so often. They used to live right up next to the, on a bunch of land that's owned by BART and then BART put up a fence at their property line and that puts them like, it's just a three feet strip of sidewalk that they, and the tents are still there but they're not on BART land. Yeah. And, and to say, like, you know, to, to step back from hero worship, uh, they correctly say Scott Weiner has a pretty spotty record about basically caring for the homeless. He's called, uh, I guess, the Coalition for Homeless a fringe community, and he has basically not really been proactive on making uh, solutions for giving people uh, stability and alternatives who are homeless. He's more interested about solving the YIMBY uh, problem of just getting supply up. And I'd say, is that a mark against Scott Wiener? I'd say, yeah, ideally he'd be doing both, but it's I, I really not going to say because he doesn't have a pure record on homelessness, he doesn't have a good answer for supply because I believe he absolutely does have a good answer. I would rather the Scott Wiener approach than some politician who builds some token shelter in some armpit of the city where all the rich neighborhoods have pushed it out. I would much rather have a Scott Wiener approach than some person that can trumpet around that they built a 50-person homeless shelter in in Mission Bay or tucked away or somewhere or in um, or in the Hunters Point or something like that. Kind because, of the, the guilt assuaging version of yeah. dealing with a problem. You yeah. don't deal with it, but you assuage your guilt. Yeah, the Bay Area liberal feel-good solution. Like, oh, we increased the we 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 really did something here look at what we did for these 50 people but what scott weiner does if what he does succeeds he will help 50 million people you could help 50 million people the capacity on the pencil alone would be in the hundreds of thousands it i think absolutely would and that would basically not only affect those units but the way the rest of the yes. economies of housing yes. would be i mean i would say this has perhaps the danger of being too extreme and it may die a quick merciless death because it just is going to make too many people feel, hey, this is a bit much. And that's I, true. I worry about it because if you every city says, you know what? We all agree. We all agree. We need more housing. <laughs> of course we need more housing, but not here. We need yeah, it there. Not here. Not I here. I mean, Marine County's worse. Atherton's worse. Not here. But I mean, of course we need housing everywhere. And if you say, okay, we'll call your bluff. Housing everywhere. Are they going to say, okay, you got us? Or are they going to say, you know, we're we're against housing everywhere. We actually don't. Have, actually, we we honestly didn't want any housing the entire time. Uh, you 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 got us. Oh yeah, that's why NIMBYs will call for oh, raising the minimum affordable percentage to a hundred percent affordable because yeah. they want because they know that that a hundred percent times zero is is zero. That's exactly what they want. And that is, I think, the most troubling thing about <laughs> about the intergentrification voice is you get people who really are they are good people fighting for right and wrong and they 
say the exact same things as people who are NIMBYs who really have evil diff- incarnate. Yeah. Zelda Bronstein, you get all the anti-gentrification people will be retweeting all these articles she's writing. She's uh, 48 Hills. And she says, like, okay, you know, building won't solve your problems, you know. And she has all these kind of leftist reasons for saying, you know, you know, supply and capitalist answers are not going to solve your, your problems. And after this, like, there's all these records showing she is a uh, major uh, landowner and and arguably slumlord. Imagine in, that. In the city, I mean, if people saying the same messages are serving extremely, extremely venal private profit motives in the, in the voice of saying, hey, this is too capitalistic, that's nuts. And there's such a weird, weird, weird problem in that you get the landlord community and the socialist community very buddy-buddy. Yeah, when, aligned in their goals. And I'll say this, and I'm the I'm the cuckoo is like, hey, let's let's be let let's really target the landlords first because of all people, if you say, okay, there's too much business, business is bad, I'd say, well, okay, too much maybe business. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you could people say, okay, any time business is what makes a town. That's why people <laughs> like going to the mission is because there's interesting places to go and stuff to do. I mean, no one likes going to the sunset because there are no businesses. It is only homes. There's only a few people who are really that frenzy. Believe voluntary trade is a bad thing in general. You could make a case like everything shouldn't be. All, you certainly shouldn't privatize everything. There is a you know, we live in a mixed economy. It absolutely should be mixed, but it's you say of all things we should be targeting as bad business. Uh, yeah, landlordism. There's it's a it's a very it's it's a economically uh, unproductive way to make money, and it it's is. very weird that you get the socialists saying, "Oh, those are the good ones." <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, because when you look at actual countries that have implemented socialist or socialistic policies, yeah, one of the first things they do is build enough housing for absolutely everybody right next to the factories yeah. with excellent public transit. And the American socialists do the American socialists wholeheartedly accept the parts of socialism they want, but they reject the parts that actually are excellent for the economy and excellent for working people that socialist countries have actually implemented. It's it's almost as though they really don't have the right kind of positive vision for the future, and they really are just offering, hey, let's not move forward in what can go wrong. Let's keep the scraps we have. And I think some people are just cowing and doing the wrong messages, but there is absolutely a very self-serving community which is playing them like a horn. And yeah. it's absolutely yeah. serving their goals by getting to say, hey, Something like this is is pro capitalism. It's pro gentrification. You need to combat this, and it's also very pro. Like stopping it is pro landlord, and they that's not the message that's being uh, said here. Yeah. It's, oh man, that that Prop Thirteen and rent control. I mean, they are extremely similar, and yeah. I think this is where they align. This is where they come up when projects or legislation are coming up in San Francisco, and lucky and prosperous Prop 13 landholders and lucky, just lucky, um, and perhaps long, long time San Francisco resident rent control holders are united in their thinking and their and their goals. I mean, you talk about, yeah, like below market rate housing. I was looking uh, up just basically some, some, some uh, well, what's the first result? I got Menlo Park. Menlo Park BMR units. There's like 10 of them. For and rental or purchase? 
for purchase. Yeah. 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 There's like that's 10 a, of There's them. a distinction right there. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then you talk about this. It's saying there are none available. It's like, oh, big surprise. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> big surprise. There is always a gigantic wait list for rent-controlled units. Yeah. It is a solution which I think is very largely a good – I think it has something which is good intentions, which if you can't actually supply it – it doesn't do you any good. Yeah. If you if you actually are able to build subsidized units that there's enough for everybody, there's a name for that. It's called public housing. If it's actually subsidized directly, yeah. if it's being done if it's being done only through incentives, it's called cheap market rate housing. Yeah, exactly. Rent control and anti eviction legislation helps those who currently have a place in the city. It does absolutely nothing, and in fact, it hurts people who have already been displaced. The only thing that is going to bring back people who have already been displaced is if we build so much market-rate housing that the price falls through the floor. I mean, the really the thing is, if you want it to be fair for everybody, it means everybody can afford it. That, by definition, is the market rate is low. Bring down the market rate. Like, it... it I I almost feel simplistic trying to trying to argue it this way like I'm in econ like micro econ 101 and I, I you feel like a schmuck cuz then people tell you that they just don't believe in supply and demand or that supply supply and demand doesn't apply to the bay area supply and demand doesn't apply to housing supply and demand doesn't apply to this horrible capitalistic failure like that is that they can just say that like I don't I don't believe in it yeah I mean and it's it's yeah. I, it's tough to see what their good alternatives are outside because usually there aren't. As far as uh, you really call them socialists, but but definitely NIMBY, the Sierra Club, all time favorites. The local the local chapters. Sierra Club a few days ago came out against SBA twenty seven. Uh, they said they had a letter. They said quote unquote it's heavy handed. The whole Sierra, like the national organization, uh, California, I believe. California, Sierra I believe. Oh I God. believe it was California, not just Bay Area or San Francisco. Okay, yeah, I, I believe, believe it. it was California. It's heavy handed, mm. and they said, "What's their basic solution? We need to give time to the current methods, which time. are going to allow communities to build the housing they need." They say, oh, "Infill, we like infill, but not not this not like ha- this, not like this." They they offer no solutions. We They're prefer so- <laughs> suburban sprawl. We prefer the automobile to stay forever, and. The the club that should say if we don't stop sprawl and basically people commuting in cars four hours a day, it's killing the environment. It's it's putting how much carbon in the atmosphere. It's killing the economy. It's killing people. Yes, I mean it's the Sierra Club. For them to say we need to give time instead of infill solutions, it just shows that they really don't have the environment at the best at at in their best interest. They are completely out of touch. With something that would affect their, because it'd be too. If you would say, if you're campaigning for things that are far away in the lovely mountains or in the lovely foothills or in the lovely, those are far away. Anything you do there is not right at home, and it's very, very easy to justify some. Oh, we got to protect habitats. We got to protect um, parks. We got to protect land. But this is something that's at home. It's going to affect you. And it's not, it, and it's a, very, it's very subtle. It's pro-transit, and they came out as being effectively anti-transit. They they sent a message, and I'd say if there's one thing that was actually a kernel of actually well-reasoned alarm, they say this will offer disincentives to one maintaining and two extending bus transit. If bus transit comes with a string attached, which is upzoning, you will get more community to say, okay, actually, it turns out we hate buses now, and. I would say that actually is a pretty valid concern. I think I think 
SB 827 to really pass in any good state, I think one, it needs to offer good reassurances about anti-displacement measures. I think you tack it on. I think it's going to, I don't know if, the problem with that is they aren't the people who really are voting against this. It's Palo Alto homeowners. So that's, and you're never going to make them happy. Yeah. Most of the people who are displaced can't vote or they can only, or they can only, they're not very well represented even if they are eligible to vote they're busy or they don't working vote. jobs yeah, exactly they're working themselves to death yeah. to live and they're not the people who spend six hours yeah, talking. if you don't have citizenship if you yeah. have a felony if you just can't get there on election day or if you don't give a crap about all these people on the board of supervisors who really don't represent you excuse me yeah um yeah that's that's what ends up happening and yeah, it's crazy how the how this how this comes together like that. And the other thing about this is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you have to have some sort of way of saying that this doesn't that you can't just basically sever your bus lines, or basically you can't not have bus lines where you should. People say that actually this could be a good thing in that perhaps there are bus lines that should be reallocated to the higher transit areas that tend to to uh, to be meaningless buses to the suburbs, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. I mean, it's these same people who say, oh, but it'll stop transit. It's up to you. It, yes. is, it, is, up to, it is up to the people. It's not like... And there's a good people. Now you have people say, hey, let's bring a bus here and let's bring housing here. And that's a cool thing to fight for. People have even thrown around, as it's written now, you might be able to set up a private bus line and then upzone an area because you are just oh, going- a private bus line. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like they, it possibly is. It's true. Does it say that it has to be through a public agency? I think it's ambiguous right now. Mm. So it's kind of okay. funny. But that's why the bill is open to revision. What if you said if a new transit line is opened or if capacity is increased, yeah. that it takes ten years to trigger the A twenty seven? Yeah. It takes ten years to trigger eight twenty seven. I mean, what if not? Not letting the you know, perfect beginning be the good. I think this is not perfect. I think this is something which is yeah. kind of a weird, worse is better, top down solution, which is probably going to be pr- on aggregate very, very good. Yes, uh, it's not. If you talk to me, I am. I have my perfect in my mind. A perfect would be repeal Prop thirteen. On day Ooh. one, uh, and would be a uh, land value tax on day two, and then you have basically tons of funding, end of landlordism. But, I mean, let's be honest, that's not happening this year. SB 827 has a chance to happen this year. And it is and it is perverse, because I think most liberally-minded people who are young and politically involved would agree that a repeal, a wholesale repeal of Prop 13 would be a great thing. But short-term, it would result in a lot of displacement. There's really no way around it. It would result in a lot of displacement. When you... <laughs> and catastrophic short-term yeah. market effects. Yes. I mean, uh, the best time to plant a tree was 40 years ago. Yeah. The best time to build an apartment building, if you want it to be affordable now, yeah. was 40 years ago. Yes. And in Prop 13, the best time to repeal it was 40 years ago, before we yeah. got in a pit. When but... is the birthday? When is the official birthday? It's this year, right? It's this year. I should birthday? throw a big party. That'd be yeah. fun. Yeah. Oh, that'll, that'll oh, be great. That'd be, yeah. I, I definitely, when it, uh, when it passed, I think it's the day, it's election day, probably. It's November. Yeah. Uh, that'd be fun. And we'll, we'll uh, eat the famous Howard Jarvis Prop 13 sandwich. Have you seen this photo? He ate, he had a sandwich about some some, some some local LA uh, restaurant made a uh, they named a sandwich after him. It's just him shoving this this it's into his face. It's a beautiful photo. I'll show it to you. Oh my god, uh, it's great. Uh, yeah, sounds sounds been, but that's I can make cookies that say "mad as hell" on them. I saw a bumper sticker. I saw a bumper sticker on a 
mid-90s Toyota Tacoma. Uh, it said, I'm mad as hell, fight for Prop 13. Two- in Palo Alto, next to a sticker with a, with a footprint that said hike on it. I was like, who is this person? I wanted to meet them. Very funny. Two days ago, I saw a bumper sticker, Save California, Repeal Prop 13. First time in my life I've ever seen that. I'm I've shocked. seen some of those too now, yeah. I need a, I need, who is putting out these bumper stickers? Yeah, pro and anti. Like, this is very interesting Well, to I know. Well, the Howard Jarvis Association puts out the pro, but who's putting out these anti? Because I want to know these people. Yeah, uh, really. Because I'm surprised I'm not putting them out, because I feel like I'm the only, like, uh, so, there. okay, so other things to talk about in brief. Uh, and this is actually we're wrapping up, and there's very little to say about this. SB 828, you remember last year's big-time uh, champion, SB 35, is saying the regional housing needs need to be basically, you give them some teeth. Now it's saying, hey, if you are given uh, basically a, a leeway because you never did a good job in the past. Uh, Hermosa Beach is the one they throw out here. It, it's Right now, regional housing needs allocation says they need to build two units in the next eight years. <laughs> What actually? That's, that's, that's actual, the arena allocation. That's arena allocation. Oh my god! Two units next eight years. So they say, okay, we need to basically fix it. It's very much in the cloudy stages of how we're going to do it. It's an intense stage. SBA twenty eight is going to say, hey, places like Hermosa Beach, places like Atherton, yeah, because you suck in the past doesn't mean you could yeah. suck in the future. That have been sandbagging for years and years on their arena. Yeah, and you promising be rewarded for it. Yeah, yeah, they've been promising that. They've been promising capacity that was too low, and they haven't even been delivering to that too low capacity. So, uh, and that's one thing that's also introduced by Scott Weiner, and is going to. I think it's very exciting. I think, yes. and also, I think it has a much higher chance of passing because basically, it's the hey, let's point at Atherton and say they're doing a terrible yeah. job, which everybody loves that message of Atherton, and no one cares about them. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> except, I mean, except for the billionaires. Except yeah. for the billionaires. <laughs> Uh, they the, shockingly have a lot of power. I, I, so I've heard. Uh, it's funny though; the billionaires would would benefit probably. It, it's hard to run a business. It's hard to run a business when it's this expensive to hire and keep people. It's it's difficult. Well, they want their own private little island, but the truth is, yeah, they would be happier if everyone else would be functioning. It's yeah. not good for business when everything is. It's so, really not. Uh, so then, two more things to talk about in the future. We have two different dueling initiatives about Prop 13 reform. Yes. We have no time to talk about it today, but we need to talk about it in the future. I guess it'll be on the they'll be on all year. So, uh, but yeah, we talked about uh, SB 27 all show. Uh, Enjoy my uh, Max Kapchinski. I'm gonna actually try it again. Sorry, Max Kapchinski. Uh, yeah. So, uh, any any final thoughts about uh, what? Let's hope this doesn't die too soon. I hope it doesn't die too soon. Absolutely not. I think I hope it gets. It keeps getting revised. I hope it gets lots of input from all sorts of legislators. I think it's really in their good for all of their cities, counties, and the whole state. Um, I'm really excited to see how this evolves and, and goes forward and hopefully gets on the uh, on the ballot. I would just say for especially young people, you should know Sacramento – you can meet your assembly member, your state senator. You, it's fun. You know, if you have something to fight for, this is a fun, fun thing to fight for. And uh, I mean, we are not endorsing anything officially here at at, at uh, KZSU, but we can say it's fun to be politically motivated when you have for the first time in young people's lives say, hey, you can change things with housing to really fix these messes. And no matter who you are, there is something in it for you. If you are rich, if you are poor, if you are a tech worker, if you're a student, fixing the housing crisis and getting us out of this mess has something in it for you and has something in it for everybody. That was today's presentation of the Henry George Program. Previous episodes can be found at seethecat.org. 
where you can find more information. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford. Thank you.